morning, everyone. Hey, good morning, everyone. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, and I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Church. So glad that you're here with us this morning as we uh, jump into the ending of the series we've been in all summer. But before we get into that, let me just draw attention to this fancy little menu that's on your uh, chairs. Jenny, thanks for putting this together. It's very good. Uh, this menu, guys, lists all the ways that you can serve in our church uh, to serve the church family on Sunday morning or to serve with our church in the community outside of Sunday morning. And the reason that's on your chair is because uh, we run a, uh, each year, we just ask that everybody in our church that calls Midtown, like your church home, whether you're a regular attender or you're a partner here, that you would, you would commit to serve our church family or with our church family for a year. And so our year commitment runs from September 1 through the end of August. And so we did that last year, which means that uh, now that August is like tomorrow, which is crazy, uh, that's coming to an end, the commitments that were made last year. And so whether you've been serving or you haven't been serving, either way, all of you, we're asking for you to prayerfully consider signing up to serve in one of these ministries this next year that would start on September 1st and we're going to uh, we're asking everyone to begin praying about this this week take this home pray over it uh, and then uh, next week and then the following week that you'd actually sign up to serve in one or multiple of these areas so take this home read over it and then if you're ready to even today to sign up to serve that's great you can uh, fill this out drop it off in the uh, bucket that comes along uh, later this morning when we take offering. So please pray about this and sign up to serve. Cool? All right. So having said a little commercial uh, break, there we go. Let's get into the uh, message this morning and uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to walk through the book of Revelation as we bring uh, the series that we've been in for the last 13 weeks to a close today. And we've been walking through the entire story of the Bible this summer from cover to cover to see how the Bible declares the Bible. It tells us that like what we did, what, how we messed things up, how we you know, what, how we sinned and it led to brokenness and yet how God has pursued us and has loved to bring us back and to restore all things in the person of Jesus Christ. And today we, got to, we get to see how the story ends. And one of the things we're going to see is kind of what I've said the last couple of weeks is that the Bible, the story of the Bible can be summed up as this, that it's a love story that begins with a divorce but ends with a wedding and we're going to see that play out for us this morning. And I say it, it begins with a divorce in this, that as we saw through the beginning of the series, like when God created us, he created us to enjoy a perfect relationship with him in a perfect world. And yet man, uh, mankind rejected God. We went our own way seeking our own independence. And in doing so, we sinned. And it led to the, our relationship with God being severed and being broken. And yet, even though man rejected God, God did not reject man in that he, he, he uh, abandoned us and wanted to have nothing to do with us. But instead, he pursued us. And he came after us to win us back, though we would once again be united with him. And we've seen through this series that the primary way he did that was first through the nation of Israel. And yet then the nation of Israel rejected God. But God kept his promise to the nation of Israel and said that there's going to come one from the line of Abram that's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And sure enough, here comes the Messiah, 
Jesus the Christ, God the Son, born in the line of Abraham, to be the one who would pay the payment for sin and make way for us to be reconciled to God. And Jesus Christ comes, and yet he comes offering the kingdom and offering uh, the way for us to be reconciled to God. And what happens? Mankind once again rejects God. This time not only do they reject God, but they actually crucify him. And as we said last week, but in, in mankind's strongest declaration of our rejection of God, God was making his strongest declaration of his love for mankind. And Christ willingly goes to the cross and willingly dies in our place for our sins so that we can have our sins forgiven. And then he rises from the dead three days later, bringing the, the, as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first of things to come, of, of, of the new beginning made possible by Jesus Christ. And then for 40 days, resurrected Christ spends time on earth with his closest followers, and he commissions them to take the good news of who he is and what he's done to the ends of the earth so that everyone would know the gospel so that they too could put their faith in him. And that brings us all how it all ends. And so here's what we're going to hear in the book of Revelation. That um, what we'll see is that one day Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he will set everything right. And he will confirm the eternal destiny of all individuals and all creation will be renewed. And then there will be a great wedding. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about the end. We're going to talk about the wedding. And then we're going to talk about the beginning. should be kind of fun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. God, through your word that you've given us, we can know who you are and what you've done. We're not left guessing. We're not left to, to walk around as if blind, just trying to fill our way through this life. But, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. And, God, what you have told us about yourself is better than we can imagine. Lord, that we... Even though uh, we have rejected you, you have not abandoned us, but you've continued to pursue us. And Lord, through Jesus Christ, you've made a way, the way, for us to be united to you. And God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. And this morning, as we study the book of Revelation, you would convict us of our sin. And Lord, that you would move us by your holiness and your glory. And Lord, you would build within us an anticipation and a growing desire for us to be with you for all of eternity and for all of those that we love to be with you for all eternity. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin with the end. And uh, before I do that, let me just give you two, uh, let me just point out two things for us real quick. When we start talking about Revelation, it's kind of helpful to remi remind people of this. The first thing is that uh, we don't know when the end will come. So a lot of people like to take the book of Revelation and turn it into a study about trying to figure out when the end's coming and all that stuff. Let's just remember that like when in Acts chapter 1, remember Jesus has died, he's risen again, he's with his disciples, and they say to him, hey, now Jesus, are you going to set up the kingdom? And he, what's he say to them? Hey, that's not for you to know. It's not for you to know when the Father is appointed the times of the, of the end or when I'm going to set up the kingdom. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to focus on. Get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so let's not make the mistake of studying the book of Revelation and trying to see it as a way to figure out when the end is coming. But we should study it to remind us that the end is coming. Like there will be an end. And to build our confidence and hope that the truth is that Christ will reign over the end. Okay? So 
one thing. We're not going to be trying to like parse dates. We're not going to talk about presidential nominations or any of that stuff and try to say, man, this is coming right away. Who knows, right? No one, no one knows. All right? So that's not what we're going to do this morning. The second thing I want to point out is this, that the book of Revelation is important and but let's also not be overly dogmatic when it comes to studying the book of Revelation. And this, was, this is important because when it comes to us not being dismissive, many times people can take the posture of like, okay, all that end time stuff, and it's just kind of weird, and I just, I, mean, I don't even care about that kind of stuff. And like, don't do that. Like, this is the word of God given to us by God. In fact, look how the book of Revelation begins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In other words, this is from God to Jesus, to us, through the Apostle John, who was the last living disciple of Christ. All the others had been martyred. John is writing this in prison on the island of Patmos, where he's the reason he's in prison is because he's been sharing the gospel, and this is the last thing that he records for us. It's important. In fact, in fact it's so important that it includes in the verse, verse 3 of the book, that whoever teaches this and hears this and puts it in practice is especially blessed. So, don't be dismissive of this. And yet, at the same time, we recognize this book is super confusing. Like, if you've ever tried to read in the book of Revelation, like, you just start seeing all of this stuff in here where, like, John is using this, what feels like really cryptic and very figurative language, and you're not real sure, like, is that literal? Is that not literal? And, like, I mean, is, is really rushing waters coming out of God's mouth or a sword or what, I mean, what does that even mean? And, but John's trying to describe stuff in human language that really human language fails to be able to describe. And he's seeing things that haven't happened yet, and he's trying to put words to it. And so he's using these metaphors and all this stuff throughout it, which makes it difficult to understand at times. So let us draw conclusions when we read the book of Revelation. But in drawing conclusions, let us hold them with humility. Let's not be dogmatic about the things that there's clear ambiguity around. All right? So having said that, Let's jump into this. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the major events that take place in the book of Revelation. And so the first thing is this, the, the letters to the seven churches. The letters to the seven churches are Jesus' letter to the seven churches uh, found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So uh, the book begins in chapter 1, kind of an introduction to the book of Revelations, and then you move Revelation, and then you move right into uh, these letters. And uh, the letters all include... A warning and a promise from Jesus. And these letters are to like actual first century churches like Ephesus or Laodicea. And in it, basically, Jesus makes, uh, gives this charge and this warning to the churches. And if you had to sum up what that warning was, it'd, it'd be this. Uh, live righteously, hold the truth, maintain your love for me, give an example to the world around you. And then here's the warning. And if you don't do that, then I'm going to remove you as a church, you will not continue to exist. It's a harsh warning. 
Jesus is saying, and like, let's, let's not miss this. That God cares about how his people represent him. And if we take on the name of God, then that's not a small thing. And so the way that we live, and our holiness and our love and all that stuff, it greatly matters to God. And if we are going to defame his name, he will not just turn a blind eye to that. He will remove us from influence. He will remove us even from the existence, which actually happens to a couple, really all of these churches, sadly, that these letters were written to. But they also all included a promise. And the promise is this. If you will remain faithful, if you follow me, if you live for me in my kingdom, then I will greatly reward you when I return. And may we be encouraged by that. And Midtown Church, may we seek to pursue God with holiness and represent him with holiness and to represent him with love, knowing that one day we will stand before our king and he will reward us accordingly. Okay, that's the letters. Then after the letters in chapter 4, we move into the next section of the book of Revelation, which can be summarized as God's uh, judgment on the world, also known as the period of tribulation. And this is the largest section of the book of Revelation, really spans uh, Revelation 4 all the way through chapter 19. And it it begins in chapter 4 with John being brought into the very presence of God. And so he's in the throne room of God, and he starts describing what God looks like, and it's um, amazing, and yet, he, like, and yet also confusing. <laughs> he's trying to use these words to describe God, and it's like you get this picture like there's these incredible colors and all this light. But then you're also painting this picture of this scene where there's tons of angelic beings and people around the throne of God praising God and shouting his, shouting his praises. And there's also this tense moment. Because John notices in the very hand of God is what he describes as a scroll. And best that I can understand, I think that this scroll is basically like the title deed to the earth. Perhaps to all of creation. And then this title deed, it basically is the one who can open it. It's the one who has a right to judge and set right everything that God has created. And yet there's this tension because uh, the question has gone out, who can open the scroll and no one is stepping up to open it. No one is worthy to opening it. And so in Revelation chapter 5, John just breaks down and he, be- he begins to weep. And then he notices that there is one, as he says, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. who's in the presence of God and he comes and he takes the scroll. When Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, takes the scroll from God the Father, everybody begins to proclaim his praises. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says this. Everyone begins saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then verse 12, it goes on and says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom praises because Jesus is the one because, uh, based on what he has done through his death and his resurrection that has uh, made himself worthy. God has made him worthy to be able to take the scroll and be the one that is going to bring justice and restoration to God's creation. And Jesus takes the scroll, chapter 6, verse 1, he 
breaks the first seal. And in doing so, what happens is uh, it sets the course of 21 different severe judgments on the earth. And these, this marks the beginning of the tribulation period that God uses to judge the earth and prepare it for the end. These 21 judge, judgments, uh, you've got the seven seals. Each one of them is a judgment. The seven seals gives, gives way to the seven trumpets. And then the seven trumpets give way to the seven bowls. So 21 judgments in all. And guys, let me just tell you, like, they're severe. I'm not going to walk through all of them today much because of the sake of time. But, like, I'm not going to also gloss over it and try to make it sound better than it is. Like, it's, they're bad. I mean, it's, it's severe judgment. I mean, it's earthquakes and it's famine, and it's disease, and, and there's war, and I mean, it's like huge chunks, huge percentages of the entire population of the world just die. When you read this, you just see like, the, God, like God's not messing around when he's bringing judgment on the earth. And one of the things that I want to just point out to us is this, that the severity of these judgments ought to communicate to us Something about the severity of our sin. See, because God is holy and he's just. And he's not going to punish beyond what deserves to be punished. He's not vengeful in the sense that he's just trying to get one up us back. What he's doing here is just payment for our sin. And given the severity of the judgments, that tells us something about the severity of our sin. And yet the truth is, is if you are like me, you often find yourself treating the sin in your life with kid gloves. Like it's not a big deal. Like it can be toler tolerated. Like, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing that, but it's just kind of what I do. Or, yeah, I just did it again, and, you know, I'll try harder next time. Because so if you're living with your, your boyfriend or girlfriend and sleeping with them, or you're looking at pornography, or you're telling lies, or you're stealing, or whatever it might be, guys, our sin is severe. And the pages of Scripture throughout this entire study, that's one of the things that we should have been tuning into. Whether it be the consequence of the fall in Genesis, or the judgment in Joshua, or to the judgment in the prophets, or whether it's the book of Revelation, you hear God communicating, sin is a big deal. May we treat it accordingly. And in the sin in our lives, may we repent. And may we turn. So Revelation 4 through 19, you see these judgment on the earth for our sin. Now let me call a timeout real quick and just uh, answer a question that some of y'all might have. And some of you, uh, this might not be on your mind. And what I'm about to say probably is going to be very confusing. So I'm sorry. But um, one question that is uh, often wondered is, will the church be present for the tribulation period, will those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of your, of your sins, will we walk through the tribulation and experience God's judgment? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. Okay? How, how's that? Now let me keep on moving. Now just, I'll, let me say a couple more things on that. But uh, that, that, that's called the rapture of the church. 
Perhaps you've heard about the rapture. The rapture is a teaching that there will be a day that Jesus returns, but not all the way to the earth. That he actually will say in the clouds, calling all of those that are his. First the dead who have placed their faith in Christ. They will be called, resurrected to him. And then all who are living will be brought to Jesus in the clouds and then united with him forever in heaven. And that that is thought People have argued that that would happen before the tribulation or perhaps in the middle of the tribulation or perhaps at the end of the tribulation, kind of simultaneously with Christ's second coming. And so theological words, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and all this kind of stuff. Let me just say, all of those arguments and all of those questions and all of that, guys, that is, like, that's family discussion. Like, you, like, it... Christians throughout the ages have disagreed on this, and that's okay. You, are, you don't have to know, believe the right thing about the rapture to be a Christian, right? It's not like your eternal destiny is not dependent on whether uh, you're a mid-trib, and that's the correct view. So this is just family, just family discussion. Having said that, if you're curious about where I stand, then I would say I am pre-trib. However, I would not say that dogmatically. I hold that to us humbly. And it's really, I'm pre-trib primarily because I just hope that's right. And so I pray for pre-trib, right? We should pray for pre-trib. We should prepare for post-trib and all that, all that stuff. But here's why I think maybe pre-trib is because of the promise of Christ. And that the reason that the rapture even makes sense is because God's promise is that those who are in Christ are actually removed from the wrath of God. And guys, the tribulation period is not a tribulation period that's just summed up by suffering. If God was to remove us from suffering, if that was the idea of the rapture, that wouldn't make sense because the Christians all over the world right now are currently suffering horribly. And yet God accomplishes great things through suffering. And the tribulation period and the idea of the rapture isn't that God would remove the church from suffering. The, the idea would be that God would remove the church from the, his wrath which is what he's pouring out on the world through the tribulation. So maybe there will be a rapture. Uh, maybe it will be before the tribulation period. I can't say for sure. But if that was your question, are we going to be here for the tribulation? There you go. There's my very definitive, non-definitive answer. Maybe, maybe not. So anyways, getting back into this. One of the things that we do know from the book of Revelation that God is doing in the tribulation period is that he is, judge, like I said, judging the world for sin and using these judgments to grab the attention of the people who have yet to come to know him that will come to know him. And guys, that is especially true for the nation of Israel, for his chosen people. In fact, in, Revela in Revelation uh, chapter 7, we're told that... Um, there will be 144,000 Jews who will place their faith alone in the Messiah, who will finally come to a place where they recognize that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the anointed Messiah, and that he's the one who's made the way for salvation. Now, whether that's 144,000 literal people or not, I don't, I don't know. I tend to just read it literally. It seems to make sense. But what we do know is that what God does through these 144,000 Jewish people who come to faith here is, is just bunk. And so God just turned off the mic and like you just walk out and <laughs> hopefully not. Now here, here's my point is that during the tribulation period, guys, God in his judgment is also at the same time still acting with mercy. 
He's still saving many. 144,000 Jews who come to Christ and then take the gospel to the ends of the earth to the point that in Revelation chapter 7, we read this. Verse, uh, seven, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 to 10 says, After this I looked, and therefore before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then skipping down to verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders, one of these angelic beings or heavenly beings, asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I love this. And I answered, Sir, you know, like, why are you asking me? <laughs> John's saying, I don't know what anything's going on here. And so he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So guys, like people of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, have come, come to Christ during this period of time. And later are around the throne of God, worshiping him. So God, and even in the midst of his most severe judgments on the earth up to date, is also actively drawing people to himself all over the world. And many people respond with faith, but unfortunately, not all of them do. And as Revelation builds up to chapter 19, what you see is that Satan who's very active during this time, and then another guy that I won't get into, but the Antichrist, who is using, got Satan's using to, to lead people astray, they begin to build a huge army of people who are hostile to God. And in, this, in chapter 19 of Revelation, there's a big war. And this is where we see Jesus Christ return in the second coming and this is how he's described when he returns. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, this passage goes on to describe, Revelation 19, how Jesus destroys this army that had risen up to attack him, to defeat him. He destroys it easily. He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he throws them into the lake of fire. And then he takes Satan and the great dragon, as he's described in the book of Revelation. And, he binds, and Jesus binds him and then places Satan in the abyss. And for a thousand years, all of the demonic activity is eliminated, which is not to say that all of sin is eliminated, but just all the demonic activity. And then Jesus establishes his kingdom. And this is known as the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, little aside here again, here's another one of those topics 
the book of Revelation that's helpful to, to say that like this, like this, don't be dogmatic on this. There's, there's a room for ambiguity on whether this is a literal thousand-year reign or a figurative reign. There's different theological camps about being amillennial, post-millennial, or pre-millennial. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm pre-millennial in that I believe that this is a literal thousand-year reign where Christ, where Christ really does bind Satan and uh, for a thousand years reigns on the earth. But I could be wrong, <laughs> all right? I read it that way because that if you read through Revelation chapter 20, it reads very literal. And so I just kind of take it on that. But that's not worth dividing over or fighting over. But anyways, for what it's worth, I'm going to move on as if it's a literal thousand-year reign just because it's simpler to describe it that way. And that's what... Revelation 20 says. And so uh, in that time, uh, Christ sets up and, ru- and rules from earth. And this is important because in it, Jesus is fulfilling all of these promises that we have traced throughout Scripture up to date, where, where uh, God has promised that they will become one from the line of Abraham and then from the line of David, who will sit on the Davidic throne forever the anointed one, the Messiah. And here Jesus is ruling from earth on the Davidic throne uh, over the, uh, as he has established his kingdom on earth. And guys, the point of that, God keeps, it said throughout this whole series, God keeps his promises. That God keeps his promises. And what we will find is that God will keep all of these promises, both spiritually and physically, that he has made throughout scripture, which also should be a, a good word of warning for us and what we're about to look at in Revelation, that if God keeps his promises, then he's also going to keep the promises of what we're about to read. So let's take that seriously. And this point of Revelation starts moving very fast. So you have the battle of Armageddon, and then you have the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the very next thing you see, which is in the second half of Revelation chapter 20, is what is known as the great white throne judgment. And what we, from what we can understand, from what John writes here, is that after a thousand years, God releases Satan from the abyss and allows him to, to work in the world again to deceive people or try to rally along people who, be, who want to join him in rebelling against God once again. And almost unbelievably, he rallies a giant army that rejects Christ, even though they've lived under the perfect reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth, that they reject God, and it's a final rejection of mankind of of God. And there's this one last battle, and God destroys that army, and he takes Satan and he throws him into the lake of fire, which is the eternal punishment where he will be for all of eternity. And then the very next thing we read is about this great white throne judgment. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, it says this. And then I saw a great a white throne and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done and, and as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. 
and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Guys, the, the great white throne judgment is an eternal judgment where every man and woman will stand before God and give an account for your life. And there will be two books that are opened, as this says. One of those books will be a record of all your deeds, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said. And the other book will be a record of what you have done with the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've put your faith alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then the Bible tells us, God promises us, that your name is written in the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, then you will be ushered into the kingdom of God, in the presence of God, where you will spend all of eternity with him. But as it says here, that if your name is not written in the book of life, or if your family members' names, or your friends' names, or your co-workers' names, or classmates' names, or neighbors' names are not written in, in the book of life, then they will spend eternity separated by God, from God. And guys, that should mess with us, right? And that, should, that should mess with us, but not because it's, it's unfair, like unfair is when you get what you don't deserve, but when you have offended the, the eternal God, then we deserve an eternal punishment. And many of us would say, well, but like, I, we, what about mercy? What about grace? Like, don't we deserve that? And it's like, I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, as soon as we think God owes us mercy, we're not thinking about mercy anymore. As mercy is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is even better. Grace is getting the blessing that we don't deserve. Fair is getting what we do deserve. And when we sin against eternal God, we deserve eternal punishment. So that's not necessarily what should mess with us. So that's certainly heavy. I think what, what should mess with us is that though the Bible clearly teaches this, we often, if we're honest with ourselves, we admit that we don't live like this is going to happen. And that should mess with us. And it should move us to repent of our unbelief. And we would realize that God's going to keep his promise and one day this day will come and so may we respond with passionate pursuit and prayer for the people in our lives who have yet to put their faith in Christ that we would seek to demonstrate the love of God to them and how we serve them and love them and enter into their worlds and so that we would declare with boldness who God is and what he has done for them that they could come to know him and have their name recorded in the book of life. And guys, that's what God wants. See, God does not want anyone to perish. I mean, Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why God so loved the world. 
that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, eternal life with him. That God does not want anyone to perish. May we respond by repenting of our unbelief and act with God to bring his salvation to our family and friends and city. You see, God loves us. And that's amazing. And God loves all of mankind, for God so loved the world. And in fact, he loves us so much that what he's always been at work seeking to bring about is to bring us into a loving and perfect union or marriage with him. And that's, that's the amazing metaphor that's used in the Bible throughout its pages to communicate the type of relationship that God has always desired to have with us. And that's why in Revelation 21, after the great white throne judgment, what we read about at the very beginning of Revelation 21 are, is this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. As you see the, the metaphor that's used here, it's that of a wedding day. That the end of all things, what you have is that the people of God are presented to God as a bride to a husband. And that in this metaphor, God is communicating something incredible to us. It's that God is saying, my desire, and when I created you, was always to relate to you, not just like a king to his subjects, or to a shepherd, to a sheep. But my deepest desire has been to always relate to you as a husband to his bride. That I want a relationship that comprehensive. And that it affects every aspect of your life, just like marriage does. I want a relation with you that permanent. Like until death do us part forever and ever and ever. And then he's saying, I want a relationship with you that's that intimate. And marriage relationship is the most intimate of all relationships where you are your most vulnerable, both physically and economically and emotionally. And Jesus is saying, God is saying, that's the kind of relationship I created you for. And that I, even though you've rejected me, I've pursued you to bring about because that's what I've always wanted with you. And guys, when we understand that metaphor, it also tells us something else about the severity of sin. Because when you see that that's the relationship God has always desired for us, then you begin to recognize that sin is not just as simple as breaking the rules like a subject would to a king or going astray like a sheep would leaving the shepherd. But that sin is spiritual adultery when you give your heart and your passions to another, 
Because when we sin, we don't just break the rules. We break and trample the very heart of God. And so we should ask, why in the world would he ever want to have anything to do with us? And what in the world could ever be done to make us prostitutes, whores, to use biblical language, adulterers, to make us clean that we would be presented as a bride of Christ? And as I answer those questions, it's nothing but the loving kindness of our God. Titus 3 says it this way. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Read that. Committing spiritual adultery. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5.25 when he says, Christ loved the church in context, his bride, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so at the end of time, we may be presented to God, our Savior and husband as his radiant bride and be united with him forever in a perfect, intimate, loving relationship in a perfect world. All thanks be to Jesus Christ. You could sum it all up as a love story that begins with a divorce and ends with a wedding as a result of the relentless, sacrificial pursuit of mankind by God himself. And guys, this is a true story. This is the incredible good news of who God is and what he's done for us. And as it ends this way, it ends with the beginning. It ends right here when Revelation 21, 22, describing this new heaven and new earth where we are with God and God has come to dwell with mankind. And 1 Corinthians describes it this way. It says, as is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Guys, it's going to be better than we can possibly imagine. And so we end with these final words from the book of Revelation. 21, 5, and 6, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then last chapter, last, couple last verses, says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And guys, that's the offer. 
And if you're here today, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then hear him say, come. All of you who are thirsty, come and drink of the water of life without price, without payment. That's Jesus dying for you for your sins as the grace of God paying your penalty. And if you place your faith alone in his forgiveness, you admit, I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus, you died for me with simple faith. You are promised at that moment, your name is written in the book of life and you're promised eternity with God starting now and forevermore. God is with you. And for those of us who have placed your faith in Christ already, this is what we have to look forward to. This is how our story ends and begins. And the next chapters of this story are better than what we can possibly imagine, as 1 Corinthians promises. And so let us rejoice and anticipate his coming and work with God to make sure everyone we know has heard this message so that they can be there with us as well. So we're going to end this morning by taking communion. And this is our way to remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. And what he said to his followers the night that he was crucified, the night before he was crucified, was this. He says, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. So let's take this and remember it and look forward to the day that we get to do this with Jesus and his kingdom. If you place your faith alone in Christ, the table's open to you. If you haven't, I encourage you, take this minute right now and pray and put your faith in Christ and then join us in remembering Jesus' death on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, you are amazing. And Lord, we don't even begin to grasp just how incredible you are. But Lord, what you have told us here, I pray you help us believe. And Lord, that we would anticipate your coming. And we would be those that say, come, Lord Jesus. And Lord, that as we wait, we would see that the waiting is a result of your patience, that you, don't wish, that you wish none to perish, and that, Lord, we would join you in declaring the gospel to those that we love and those that you love and those that we just barely know because you know them fully and you died for them as well. And, God, that we would take the gospel to our city and beyond that many, many, many more people would have their names written in the book of life. God, thank you for Christ and that it's not by our deeds that we have to try to earn our way, but by what Christ has done. Lord, we remember that now as we take communion. And Lord, it leads us to want to sing your praises. Be glorified here, Christ. Amen.